Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. For a long time, public and private schools were the primary two options we've had for educating our kids. But the rise of a third option, charter schools, some argue may be an even better alternative. But what is a Michigan charter school and are they working? We'll tackle these questions with Chalkbeat Detroit's Colby Levin. Then we'll unpack the Michigan legislature's new spending plan, including what it says about Lansing's priorities with Bridge Michigan's Jonathan Osteen. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson. And we start off today's show with a very important question as the education of our society, our youth here in the state is top of mind in a lot of people's consciousness, especially with lots of the political debates that are happening. Children seem to be on the forefront of this, which means education is at the forefront of this. How we all collectively work to educate the youth and do it in the best way is at the top of mind of many in this time. But how should we collectively learn? What are the things that matter most to us? And specifically, what should we be prioritizing in our schools for children today and for future citizens? Some of these questions are left up to the state, which decides what kinds of textbooks and subjects we're all going to be using to engage with and learn with. But they are also left up to local control. And sometimes they are almost entirely left up to independent groups. Now, I'm not referring to private schools right now. I'm talking about charter schools. Later in the hour, we're going to discuss the new budget that's being negotiated in Lansing. But right now, we wanted to open up this discussion with a look at charter schools, what they are, how they operate, and why they're so weird here in Michigan. And here to discuss this with us is Kobe Levin. Kobe is a reporter with Chalkbeat Detroit and has recently wrote a piece about asking the question, what is a charter school? Has it allowed for more local governance and given students a competitive learning edge? Or has not much come from these schools at all? In fact, are they taking away important funding from public schools? All questions we want to dive in with you uh, on Kobe, but before we do that, Welcome to the show. Welcome back Thanks. to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So before I had a chance to look at your article, which was very informative, if somebody had asked me what a charter school is, I think my quick and dirty back of the napkin answer would have been uh, privately controlled school funded by, the, by public money. <laughs> but it's probably not nuanced enough. So I'm going to leave it to you as someone who's done the work. What is a charter school in Michigan? Uh, well, it's a big question. It's an important question for uh, you know, 150,000 students in the state uh, who are attending charter schools. Um, and it, it's funny that we're still asking this uh, nearly 30 years right. after charter schools became law in Michigan. Um, yet, in my experience as a reporter, um, in the experience of folks who work in the charter school industry, it's a question we hear all the time. Folks are still wondering, uh, what is a charter school? That's why we set out uh, Chalkbeat to write a basic, just like, uh, here's what you need to know if you're even thinking about sending your kid to one of, to one of these schools, if you live in a city uh, with, with a lot of charter schools, um, just to, to try to help folks navigate the system um, that still is not, uh, is not clear to the public, I think. So I'm going to so, leave it to uh, you to do that. Go for it. Yeah. Sure. So you did, you did a pretty good job, actually. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, so we're talking about public schools. This is important, uh, and it's been uh, been determined explicitly by the Michigan Supreme Court that charter schools are, are public schools. There was a fight uh, right when they came into being uh, over whether they could receive public funds. Um, the courts ruled uh, in Michigan that they can, uh, and they do. Charter schools are are largely funded uh, by taxpayer funds, same as traditional schools. The difference uh, is in the way that they're governed and overseen. Um, traditional school districts 
or local school districts will have uh, a school board that's elected by voters, whereas charter school boards, which have many of the same functions, are appointed. Uh, and then there's the key question of oversight. Uh, who are charter schools accountable to? Um, or who ensures the charter schools are being held accountable to, to the communities in which they're operating? Um, and in Michigan, that's largely universities. We have uh, an unusual system in that our public universities, uh, universities really all over the state, um, with Central Michigan and Grand Valley um, in, in the central state, central part of the state being key, uh, what are called authorizers. Um, and, and some universities uh, all the way in, up in the Upper Peninsula also playing a significant role in overseeing charter schools, which we should say are largely in cities in Michigan, uh, especially Detroit, Flint, et cetera. You mentioned that charter school boards are appointed. I just want to clarify, is that by the state itself or would it be by that oversight from the universities? Who's appointing the uh, uh, school boards for charter schools? So initially they are appointed by the universities, the, the authorizers. Um, there are some requirements uh, for, for board members. Uh, they do have to be Michigan residents, um, but uh, that process generally takes place uh, you know, out of the public eye, unlike, uh, unlike local elections where obviously voters have a chance to weigh in directly. Right, right. And you mentioned authorizers, universities, it would seem to me have a lot of things that they're worried about and then adding charter schools to it or a specific school might be a little taxing. Do we know in practice how much oversight uh, these authorizers provide? Do they farm it out maybe to a, a third party that uh, actually does the control and they just kind of sign off on it and oversee it? Or are they more directly involved? How is that working in practice here in Michigan? Well, it varies. Uh, there are some universities uh, that are uh, that have robust charter school offices. That, uh, that do a lot of work to make sure that charter schools are complying with, uh, with many laws uh, related to education that they need to be keeping an eye on uh, and that are kind of making sure that charter school leaders are keeping an eye on academic performance. Um, the trouble is it's, it's a very broad, uh, it's a very broad landscape. Yeah. Um, charter schools that, you know, have a lot of authorizers or oversight mechanisms to choose from. And uh, we've seen a phenomenon where charter schools will uh, lose their authorization because uh, maybe they're struggling with academics. And then we'll just move over to a different authorizer uh, <laughs> phenomenon that folks call authorizer shopping. And uh, th there are no breaks on that kind of practice in Michigan right now. Mm. You mentioned that uh, we have charter schools now in the state and it's still confusing decades later. Uh, but let's go back to the beginning. How and why did charter schools come to be an option here in the state? We had public schools. We had private schools. What was a charter school enacted for this uh, movement done to try to accomplish? Sure. So the watchwords for the charter school movement early on were accountability and innovation. The idea was you would create a small school, uh, uh, typically uh, outside the regular structures of a school district, where new educational practices could be tried out. Um, for idealists, this might look like um, a teacher-run school, an entirely teacher-run school, or a school that's trying out an unusual curriculum. Um, a lot of charter schools um, aim to start up with these really unusual structures. The idea here is, well, uh, we are not able to experiment in the context of a larger district. Um, there may be heavy bureaucracy there. The processes move slowly. So let's try uh, little pilot programs. Um, and that's that's the need that charter schools um, were supposedly going to fill. Governor John Engler, um, a Republican who was a really crucial figure in the early charter school movement in Michigan, talked about um, needing to kind of, uh, in his phrasing, to sort of break the grip of, of uh, what he viewed as a public school uh, I think you used the word monopoly, um, <laughs> the idea that that, that teachers unions um, and district administrators were, um, uh, you know, limiting the ability of educators to innovate. Um, now, uh, you know, I think that there's, uh, th there's really a lot of uh, disagreement about how exactly that, that was going on. Uh, the bottom line is that Engler's vision for charter schools uh, didn't entirely come true. I mean, uh, largely charter schools function uh, like their counterparts. Um, you know, if you go to a classroom in a charter school in Detroit, um, you may not know uh, that you're in a charter school right. <laughs> um, just, just by looking. Um, 
And then, uh, as we mentioned, there are some pretty significant holes um, in our accountability system, in our oversight system, compared to other states. The idea of uh, public school monopolies was just uh, kind of fascinating to me because I guess what you could have another uh, local government, I guess, if you wanted to not have a monopoly on it or move to Ohio. But uh, I guess it's one way of phrasing it. I think that's kind of part and parcel with having uh, one unitary government. That We're speaking with Kobe Levin, the reporter for Chalkbeat Detroit, who recently wrote an article, What is a Michigan Charter School? And I, you mentioned the idealism uh, of people starting out with uh, these schools and thinking of different ways that maybe they can enact education. Is it idealists that have flocked to charter schools right now, or is it more people who are just trying to make money off of the state? They see an opportunity to get into the coffers of public funding, and they're trying to take advantage of it. Uh, yeah, so there, there is definitely a split. It's not hard to find folks who are involved in the charter school movement early on in Michigan who feel disappointed um, about where we are right now. Um, a lot of those uh, more unconventional ideas um, either died off and failed in one way or another, or just kind of came back into the fold of school operations. Um, and largely the, um, the charter sector uh, is, uh, is managed by by companies, by nonprofit companies and for-profit companies. Um, in Michigan, the emphasis is really on for-profit companies um, who are responsible for the day-to-day -day operations of charter schools. Um, so they do things like hire teachers, pay curriculum, um, set the lunch menu. So they really are, at this point, the major players in the charter school movement. Um, charter schools were designed to be uh, mom-and-pop shops, um, local initiatives, and that does exist, um, but largely um, the, the sector is uh, is run um, and, and is, is heavily in, influenced by um, companies that, that can be uh, quite large um, and, and operate charter schools, not just in Michigan, but across the country. Hmm. And let's talk about some of the results now. Again, we've had decades of charter schools, and right now, as you mentioned, about 150,000 Michigan students are in charter schools. What have been the results? Are they performing better than their counterparts in public schools? Worse? Uh, how has it trended over time? What have you found in your reporting about the success of uh, or failure of uh, students in these systems? Sure. So there's a tremendous amount of debate about this. There's a lot of academic research. Um, if you look just on the very surface level um, in Detroit, where I've done most of my reporting, you will see that charter schools do post uh, somewhat higher test scores, um, though those are uh, uh, still substantially lower than state uh, average test scores. Um, now, the question is, is that a fair comparison? And uh, the truth is, uh, we don't really have clear answers there. Um, if charter schools are enrolling the same profile of students, um, students who have the same challenges as their counterparts in local districts, then sure, we can compare them their scores directly, but uh, we don't know that for sure. Um, it, it's still an open question whether students in charter schools are uh, uh, slightly better off uh, socioeconomically in some way, whether they have other advantages that uh, uh, allow them to do better on these kinds of tests. We know that test scores are influenced by many factors outside of school walls, and um, there just is, is not a comprehensive answer. What, what I can say for absolute sure uh, about charter schools in Michigan is that they have not um, definitively proved that they're able to, to consistently produce higher test scores and better academic results than their counterparts. Mm -hmm. We're speaking with Kobe Levin, reporter for Chalkbeat Detroit, who recently wrote the piece, What is a Michigan Charter School? A primer on a surprisingly hard-to-answer question. And as it's a hard-to-answer question, perhaps you out there listening can give us some insight. How do you feel about charter schools? Do you like them? Do you send your kids to a charter school? Did you attend a charter school? What's your experience with the system? Alternatively, do you think charter schools are bad and poorly regulated? And how would you like to, to see them governed, if at all? Give us a call, 313-577-1019. Again, 313-5019, and we will work you into the conversation. You can also comment on Twitter with the hashtag Detroit Today as we move to our first caller, Alberta. She knows a little something about education in Detroit. Alberta, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. 
Thank you very much. I want to begin by saying I believe they should all be disbanded. Mm. Well, go ahead. Make your case, please. It comes down to one word, well, two, money and profit. Mm. Charter schools have not produced students of any excellence. And mind you, to go to a charter school, a parent has to have the wherewithal to get up there and enroll their child, which means in many cases, Detroit is faced with educating those who are most challenged, those who have learning disabilities, those who may be deaf. All of those challenges fall upon the Detroit system, and it's not fair. Alberta, you raise a lot of points that a lot of people have mentioned and do so with such passion. Uh, I do appreciate that. Kobe, I leave the uh, question uh, for the comment from Alberta. Is this something that you've been hearing a lot as well uh, in your reporting on this? Yeah, sure. There, there's a lot to unpack here, Alberta, and thanks for the points. Um, you know, it's commonly uh, commonly said about charter schools that they don't have to accept all the same students as traditional schools. That's not true, um, but I think parents don't know it well enough. Charter schools, as public schools, have to take uh, have to take any, all comers. That's that's part of the rule. Um, if they're oversubscribed, they can have a lottery, but otherwise, they have the same uh, requirements to take uh, special education students. Um, that, for example, that traditional schools do. Um, that's something that parents should know um, because it is it is a right that they have to enroll their child. Um, there certainly is a lot of criticism across Michigan of the influence of for-profit companies in charter schools. Um, you are seeing some pushes in the legislature right now for more transparency. Um, now, uh, the the sort of uh, nuclear option, if you will, to disband them all, as Alberta said, <coughs> I have to say it's it would be challenging. Um, uh, you know, that is, uh, you know, an extremely, extremely significant step um, for students in in hundreds of schools across the state. I mean, in, in Detroit, uh, a really substantial portion of all students are enrolled in charter schools. And, um, uh, you know, you would have to explain to their families, many of whom like their schools, uh, what what is next for their kids and, and why you're doing uh, what you're doing there. I would be remiss if not noting that's Alberta Tinsley to lobby former Detroit City Council person, very involved in education. And we always appreciate you listening and bringing your excellent points, Alberta. Thank you for calling Detroit today. We move on to our next call we have right now. This is Deborah in Detroit. Go ahead, Deborah. You're on Detroit today. Hi, and thank you, Kobe. I'm calling mainly to say that one of the problems in the lack of understanding of charter schools is that Detroit media does not cover the issues. Even the most flagrant violations of public trust and tax dollar you know, spending is not covered by Detroit. And sorry to say, that includes WDET. Kobe is one of the few people that has had the courage and the backing from Shotbeat to write about issues, including the sale of a national heritage properties for millions of dollars. The other point I'd like to make is that after the charter, when the charter school bill was passed, there was a limit on charter schools. But at the same time, we had free market energy, and it was wide open. You could choose your energy provider. In the years that those two bills have been on, on the books, the trajectories have been totally opposite. We've totally opened up charter schools, and we have uh, restricted free market energy to 10%. So that alone is a study of money in energy and economics. Deborah, I always appreciate a little bit of constructive criticism. I'm always trying to give you the best journalism we can. So I take your point and thank you as we present your questions and comments to Kobe doing the work on charter schools, which we're covering right now. Go ahead with your response, Kobe. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the call, Deborah. Um, and I have to say, in WDET's defense, it is a big sector in Detroit. Um, there are 63, if I'm at, at last count, charter school districts. And let me tell you, it's really complicated. It, covering one Detroit district, uh, DPSCT, our local district, is is hard. Keeping track of what 63 different districts are doing um, can feel like searching for a needle in a haystack. So uh, I feel for the reporters out there, and I would encourage folks to dig in. Um, so 
Deborah's raising like a, a number of specific accountability questions around charter schools. Many of these um, are fueling talks about charter school transparency. I wanted to make sure we address that because it's likely to be um, kind of the first step that uh, the new Democratic majority in Lansing will take on charter schools. They want uh, education management companies to have to uh, share audited financial statements um, and to take some other steps to ensure that the oversight system uh, is a little bit more airtight. The idea there is that um, when folks uh, in the community have questions like Deborah's about how charter schools are spending their money, that it won't be so hard to get answers. Right now, um, because uh, many charter school operations and expenditures are done under the uh, 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 under the operations of a company, um, which is not subject to public records law, that information about that spending and about charter school operations can be hard for the public to access. Yeah, yeah, that is a real issue when you start uh, mixing uh, different styles there together. More oversight would require easier access. It's also a great ad, by the way, Deborah, in Detroit for uh, uh, why it's important that we get your dollars here at the station so that we can continue and try to expand our reporting for you as we continue our conversation on Detroit Today with Kobe Levin about charter schools. And we want to include you in the conversation. What are your thoughts on uh, charter schools? Are you for them, against them? What questions do you have about how they operate? Keep it locked right here as we continue on 1019 WDET with Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. It's 1019 WDET, Detroit Today. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson, having a very informative conversation about charter schools, what they are, why it's so complex, your thoughts on them, positive and negative. We've got some great calls lined up, Mike and Gross Point, Leslie and Hazel Park. You guys will be coming up as I speak with Kobe Levin of Chalkbeat Detroit. But before we get to the phones, have some comments on Twitter that we want to get your way, starting with Big Neo, who says there shouldn't be any charter schools, only public schools and private schools. America needs to ensure all public school children receive a world-class education regardless of zip code. Do that and there'll be no uh, need for a charter school. We also have a comment from Melinda. She says, I like the ideal of charter schools as a way to experiment with schooling, but what I've seen is just a traditional school that can put anyone in a classroom and call them a teacher, quote unquote. That's unfair to those students whose neighborhood schools were replaced with charters. We also have a comment from a Cycle saying charter schools are not public schools when the board is not elected uh, by or accountable to the community and they answer to a company driven by profits instead of for kids, yet they receive the same public money meant for public schools. Finally, we have Lauren on Twitter saying, I strongly believe our public schools would be able to better serve families if charter schools didn't exist. Private uh, slash parochial schools, many of which have generous financial aid, have their place and should remain a valid option for families. As we go to the phones right now, really want to get this next call on Mike and Gross Point. Go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Good morning. Good. Um, I miss Steven, but, you know, whatever. I miss Steven, so, too. Go ahead, Mike. Schools, charter schools needs to go. They need to go. I served on the board of directors for a charter school for one year until it was, till the charter was revoked because the uh, students were receiving worse grades than the Detroit public schools and the company that owned the school and was running it was taking far more money than they were supposed to. And so uh, I was handpicked by the owner from Gross Point who thought me and everyone else on the board would just rubber stamp everything they were doing and they found out different. So... The truth is charter schools need, need to go. That money needs to be put back in the public school system. They're run by very greedy people who could care less about the students. Thank you. 
Appreciate your points. Kobe, is this something, a story that you've heard from other people? What's your experience with this in your reporting? Sure. So the caller uh, is touching on just how hot of an issue charter schools uh, have become politically. Um, there was tremendous opposition really from, from the start in Michigan, um, unlike some parts of the country where the charter school movement had a little bit more bipartisan support in Michigan. Uh, our system uh, was designed uh, largely by the Republican Party um, with a free market system in mind. I think for many Detroiters in particular, charter schools uh, are associated with the process of, of declining enrollment in the district. Um, there, there's a view that charter schools in the city have es essentially uh, pulled kids out of Detroit public schools with negative impacts for the local school district. Um, so uh, these are certain, certainly commonplace arguments that we hear. And uh, as I mentioned before, I think some of those concerns are driving potential reforms in Lansing as the Democrats uh, take control of the legislature for the first time in quite a long time. So with the idea of, uh, of uh, competition, if I were to try to make the argument for the other side as best I could, it would maybe look something like, well, if the charter school wasn't doing better or didn't have uh, more opportunity, people wouldn't have chosen it in the first place, and thus it requires uh, the local public school to do a better job in order to entice the charter school student back to uh, the uh, public school. How would you respond or how would critics respond to that presentation? Sure. Um, I, I think that it's a, it's a common uh, way of looking at the problem. One, even the district has embraced uh, at different times. Uh, Detroit Public Schools Community District has talked about wanting to, uh, to compete directly with charter schools to draw students back. Um, I think it's, it's hard to have this conversation without talking about the history of DPS, yeah. uh, the tremendous challenges that the district has faced over the last uh, 20 or so years uh, and beyond. Hundreds of schools closed in the city, uh, schools that really uh, were completely under-resourced um, and, uh, and, and simply not, not serving students um, uh, at, at a fundamental level for a very long time. Yeah, in yeah. that environment, there are, a lot of, there are just a lot of families who lost trust, who were looking for something else for their children, and charter schools became a symbol of that, of, of another option. Um, it was presented by, by, its ab by advocates at the time as a sort of escape hatch. Mm. Um, and uh, if it were an effective escape hatch, uh, that would be terrific. In fact, a lot of students wind up in schools that are performing at about the same level uh, as, as their district counterparts. Yeah, when things are going tough, you will look for alternatives to try to accomplish what you're looking to uh, do, especially when it comes to educating your kids. As we continue this conversation about charter schools with Melissa in Metro Detroit. Melissa, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Oh, good morning. Um, <clears throat> good morning to your guest. Right. I, I think that uh, charter schools um, that are defunding public education, um, as well as um, the GOP in particular that has been defunding education for years or um, or you could say not adequately funding, those two combined, I think, is going to just kill public education because one of the goals for, by some people is actually to change public opinion. And public opinion is changing. You've, we've seen it over the last election cycle, people screaming, yelling about public education and so forth. And that's one of the ways to do it. Wasn't it Grover Northquest that said, um, starve the beast? Well, that's what's happening. We're starving public education because some people, the big donors, not all, some big donors in our country believe that their money shouldn't be going to public education. I, pre they don't need it. I appreciate your points there, Melissa, in Metro Detroit. And one thing she hits on, I want to make sure we make clear, Kobe, uh, people are using this refrain that charter schools are defunding uh, public schools. Is that accurate? And if so, how does that work? How is that happening? Sure. So there's, uh, again, a lot of research on this front. Um, and, uh, you know, I would say on balance, uh, it's true that there are some negative financial impacts for the district. Uh, of students moving out um, to charter schools. Um, districts are funded on a per pupil basis. So for every student that leaves the district, um, they are losing some money. Um, of course, that money is winding up in a public school, a charter school. Um, so it's not a net loss for public education. Uh, and we should just add that, that right now, 
uh, in the context of uh, uh, of COVID, where there's been a tremendous amount of government aid, um, districts, uh, you know, broadly public education is doing okay. We're taking baby steps towards uh, getting back to where the state was in support for education uh, maybe 25 years ago. Um, there's folks who would like to see us go a lot further for sure, um, but I think it would be hard to say that you're seeing a negative trend for education funding right now. Um, now, the question of whether charter schools are, are serving students, um, whether it's a, a good arrangement of schools in, in Detroit in particular, uh, is another question um, and we should debate it. Yeah, yeah. Melissa in Metro Detroit, thanks again so much for your call and adding to the conversation, which leaves an open line for you out there. What are your opinions on charter schools? Have you attended a charter school? Especially, uh, are you a parent of someone or are you involved with the charter school system? I think it's a net positive, net negative. What have your experiences been? We'd love for you to share them with us by calling 313-577-1019. And even if you're just interested in education, give us a call and your opinion. 313-577-1019 as we speak with Kobe Levin, reporter for Chalkbeat Detroit, who recently wrote the piece, What is a Michigan Charter School? A primer on a surprisingly hard-to-answer question. One question that's not hard to answer. Who's next on the phones? It's Brian in Detroit. Go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Oh, good morning. Good morning. Go ahead. Yeah, I was wondering, because uh, I drive around the city in the, uh, this tri-county area a lot, and I see a lot of abandoned schools that used to be charter schools. I mean, they're really, a couple of my son's schools, they're t- halfway torn down, and they used to be a charter school. And I was wondering, how many charter schools have failed in Michigan over the past 30 years? Kobe, do we have any uh, information on that, on what the failure and success rate, or the failure rate, I should say, specifically, has been of charter schools in the area? Sure. So there are more than 100 charter schools that have closed down. Um, This is an area of intense contention because those closures have been really, really disruptive for students in many cases. I've covered some surprise closures where, you know, you get to October and a high school is closing down. Um, So there are real concerns about that. Um, And, you know, I'll say that for folks who took, uh, you know, who prefer a free market approach to education policy, this is actually a good thing. It's the idea that charter schools uh, uh, are experimental, and some experiments will fail. I mean, that's how you get to to, to increase knowledge um, and and to providing a better product on the whole. The question is how you balance that with uh, families' needs for for stability and some predictability in their education. Um, for the idea that stability uh, is actually an important piece of being able to learn. I could not even imagine. And, you know, I hear the experimentation, experimenting on our kids. That's always kind of a red flag, but you get it. You you like the concept. But the idea that your school would close in September, October while you're just getting started, or even if you're coming up on exams and it would just shut down underneath you, I think is frankly kind of horrific and something that uh, anything that we did would have to have uh, guardrails up to prevent against. Not an example of the free market working very well, but an interesting point. And Brian, I do appreciate your question as that uh, was very uh, insightful and very important to this conversation that we're having about charter schools. As we move to Annie in South Lyon. Annie, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Hi. Um, I had a daughter who was in a public school um, and really struggled with anxiety and depression. And I looked into a charter school nearby and it actually was a godsend for us. Um, it was a project-based school. Um, she wound up doing very well, smaller class sizes. And I honestly feel there, that charter schools can be a real benefit for children. Um, I have another daughter who's in the public school, and she does great. But there does need to be options for families that aren't at a cost. Um, parochial schools have a cost, and charter schools do not. Um, so I really feel... For certain children, it can be a benefit. I don't think she would have graduated high school um, if she didn't um, attend the charter school. I appreciate the perspective, Annie. A point of clarification, you say you're out in South Lyon. Is that where the charter school was as well, or where was this charter school located? The charter school was in Brighton. Okay. And um, in the public school system that your uh, children would go to, which one was that also? And do you believe it was a good system? Was that a good system for everyone there? It was a good system for my for my younger daughter who attends there now. Um, she does great there, but right. for my older daughter, it was too big of a school. Right. There's just under 900 kids. Um, she she just had really she had a lot of struggles there, and I don't feel 
that the administration and the counseling at the school really worked with her appropriately. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started to look for options. And when I found a charter school with no cost, it really benefited her yeah. um, to help her be successful. Uh, I appreciate your perspective. Kobe, kind of the example that people would hold up about how charter schools could provide uh, some benefit, though we do note this is out in Brighton and South Lyon areas, not so much in Detroit. Uh, what are your response to the points that she brings up? Sure. It's a, it's, it's a good uh, good set of points. Uh, you know, the idea that some charter schools can provide innovative practices or provide a different kind of environment that might work for students. Um Behind this collar, you might find, uh, you know, many thousands of people more. Um, you know, critics of charter schools do need to, to reckon with the fact that, uh, as I mentioned, there's 150,000 students in Michigan. That's a, about 10% of all of our students enrolled in charter schools. Um, and many of those families chose those schools. Um, in general, in public education, people tend to like their school that their kid is attending. <laughs> um, and so you have to answer the question for parents. Uh, you know, what's, what's so wrong with the situation they're in right now? Um, and, uh, you know, that's absolutely on, uh, on, on us in the media and on folks who are engaging in these debates um, to, uh, to, to make those arguments. Appreciate the perspective, Annie, in South Line. As we move now to Gay in Highland Park, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Hello, is this, is this am I on? You are on. Go oh, ahead. Thank you. Uh, a friend of ours has, uh, has a child in a charter STEM school in Detroit. And during the time when they were doing it all by computer, during the pandemic time, uh, my daughter, who was babysitting at the time, actually listened in to one of the lessons that he was being presented with. And it was a, a rather advanced, he was a six-year-old. It was a that advanced uh, thing about mapping and totally incomprehensible to the child because there was no real explanation of what that was and he didn't know what it was and they didn't really explain it that but they were getting credit for teaching this kind of thing mm. as part of a stem education yeah the budding world of six-year-old cartographers i present the uh, points to you uh kobe sure so the, you know this caller is reflecting an experience that a lot of folks had during the pandemic um, of just you know watching their child's schooling take place and uh, being a little concerned or surprised by what was going on. Um, you know, a question uh, you know that that I would have for that school is, uh, you know, how do they respond right. to this? Right. Uh, right. Um, you know, a, a big concern that I've had around charter schools, based on my experience as a reporter, um, is is just a, a sometimes a lack of public response. Um, you know, I've had difficulties uh, accessing public meetings around charter schools. Um, and so what you want to make sure um, a, a standard that schools should be judged by is, are they prepared to respond to concerns like this, to explain to the parent what the, what was going on in the lesson, um, and to, you know, commit to doing better if, uh, if in fact something was going wrong. Right, right. Well, Kobe, I could talk about this forever, but I, actually I can't. I, I'm, I'm obligated to move on to new things. But we will return to the topic of, uh, of uh, charter schools in the future, I promise you, especially after the admonishment I received today. So thank you for coming on, Kobe. Got to have you back real soon. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up, we're going to talk about the Michigan budget with Jonathan Osting here on Detroit Today, 1019 WDET. Detroit today. I'm Steve, or I'm not Stephen Henderson. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson as uh, we get into the money that makes everything here in Michigan happen. The legislature right now is running a surplus, a surplus with a lot of extra cash. Due to federal spending, Michigan has about $9 billion in its coffers. And Democrats in the majority have been hashing out how exactly to spend this money. To talk about where the priorities are and when this latest budget is intended to be signed, we have Jonathan Osteen here with us. Jonathan is a reporter with Bridge, Michigan, covering the Capitol. Jonathan, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for being here because, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about budgets all the time, but I mean, many of us, I don't even know if we understand exactly how state budgets work. So just to start off, can you tell folks, listeners, how often budgets are decided and what this process is like? Yeah, sure. So there's a couple things going on in Lansing right now. Um, there is a annual budget process, and that really has not yet commenced for the upcoming year. Um, but it's just, you know, talks are just getting started. The governor is probably going to lay out her fiscal year 2024 budget, so for the next fiscal year, um, in, in February. So in the next couple weeks here, she'll lay out kind of her roadmap. But in the meantime, there's also these what we call supplemental spending bills that come up uh, over the course of a year, um, you know, for various reasons. Maybe the state got some extra federal money and has to allocate it. Or maybe, as is the case right now, it's got a $9 billion surplus and has a, has a couple um, lawmakers have a couple things they want to fund. So what we saw happen last week, and in fact, just this morning, uh, Governor Whitmer was signing was a $1.1 billion supplemental spending bill um, that will draw down some of that $9 billion surplus, but not all of it. A lot of that's going to remain uh, on the books for uh, continued talks about spending or tax cuts is another uh, another big thing that lawmakers are talking about right now. You know, just because you have the money doesn't mean you should be spending the money. Is there any discussion on the needs? Is it necessary right now to be drawing down that money? Is that something that we should be doing, saving it for a rainy day? What are the discussions when it comes to how to prioritize that extra cash? Well, you know, the state actually has been building up its rainy day fund in, in recent years. So in addition to this surplus, it has another account that, uh, you know, is colloquially called the rainy day fund. And that's got a pretty healthy amount right now. Um, so, you know, this is money that certainly can be spent or saved to pay for tax relief and things like that. The question is, you know, how do you design, uh, you know, a, a budget or so a spending plan or tax cuts um, to you know because those some of those items might be uh, might have a you know perpetual income on the state budget right so right. you cut income taxes that's going to be every year uh, the nine billion dollar surplus that we're talking about right now is one time money right you spend that it's gone uh, there's no guarantee the state is going to continue pulling in these big revenue numbers uh, especially with you know the looming threat of a of, of a mild recession it seems you know is is possible right now so um, you know policymakers have to kind of do this in a uh, you know seemingly fiscally responsible way right you can pay for for some things that might be in perpetuity, but most of that $9 billion, um, you know, will probably be spent on more one-time projects. So that $1.1 billion spending bill that I just talked about that the governor signed this morning, uh, that's got some money, for instance, for, you know, sort of one-time business incentives. There's a uh, paper mill company up in Escanaba in the UP that wants to um, basically update, upgrade, modernize its facility to uh, make uh, cardboard instead of just paper, and the state is giving them $200 million to do that. Um, so that's one-time money to help this company, you know, retool their factory and retain jobs in the region. Um, but, you know, the, the the tax cut discussion, which is a separate discussion, that has longer-term impacts. I mean, even the Democrats are talking about not necessarily broad income tax cuts, but pension tax relief or earned income tax credit. Uh, but those two would be in perpetuity. Those would be every year money coming off the books. So, you know, it's kind of a delicate balance, a dance. Uh, but also lawmakers are looking to do some stuff that probably get them some nice headlines, too. So yeah. sometimes uh, that trumps the need for fiscal responsibility. We'll see what happens. Oh, Jonathan, you've opened up so many topic areas that I want to dive into. But we'll just start here. I hear the old adage of uh, show me the budget and I'll tell you what the legislators prioritize are, something to that effect. Uh, what do we know about where the spending is in the latest budget and what are those priorities we see in it? 
Yeah. So, like I said, we'll we'll know a lot more uh, in the coming weeks when the governor lays out her sort of roadmap for the next fiscal year. Sure. Uh, I think that's where you're going to see a lot of the big things she's been talking about. For instance, in her state of the state address last week, those were proposals. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to see the details about how she plans to fund those. So, for instance, she is calling for a phase-in, a four-year phase-in, of a universal pre-K system. The state already has a fairly expensive uh, state-funded you know, state preschool system. How much is the governor talking about um, increasing that funding? So how soon will the state start transitioning towards a universal system? And by universal, I mean free preschool for any family regardless of income. Currently, uh, the state has an income ca- uh, in income. Uh, cap of roughly 250% of the federal poverty level for um, free preschool. The governor wants to expand that to everybody in the state. So we'll see those details. But, you know, in the current uh, spending bill that the governor signed this morning, $1.1 billion, so a pretty big bill in its own right, uh, you know, a lot of it is spending down some some uh, federal money that was still on the books from, like, COVID relief funding. So uh, there's a bunch of money for blight elimination, um, uh, $50 million for uh, a program designed to help local communities get uh, low-income housing projects off the ground. So, you know, these are things Democrats talk about a lot, and we're seeing them uh, spend this money. Granted, it's easier when it's federal money, right? right. <laughs> that's money that's sent to the state for often very specific purposes, um, and it's more of a, of a pass-through approach. So in terms of state money, we're seeing the governor sign this, this bill that has, like I mentioned, money for uh, one business up in the UP, but also another $150 million for, for what she calls the SOAR Fund. It's a strategic outreach uh, fund that is designed to sort of uh, help lure businesses to the state. So um, the governor certainly is trying to, you know, uh, stimulate economic projects as well and avoid that potential recession that we talked about. We're speaking with Jonathan Osteen, a reporter covering the Capitol for Bridge, Michigan, the Lansing uh, state capital, to be specific. And one of the things that you mentioned while we were talking was a potential for uh, tax relief. Uh, where are we at right now in Lansing in terms of, uh, terms of the earned income tax credit as well as the pension tax and the discussion of repealing that? Yeah, uh, Democrats are really close to sort of, you know, making that a done deal. Last week, both the House and the Senate approved separate versions of uh, earned income tax credit expansion and pension tax repeal. This week, uh, they're expected to sort of, uh, you know, address any differences that they might have had between their two uh, respective packages and potentially uh, get that legislation to the governor, you know, by the end of this week for, for signature in the next, you know, couple weeks or, or so on. So uh, I think they're quite close there. Um, you know, there's a couple differences between the House version and the Senate version. So the yeah, the Senate, for instance, took some steps to really try and speed up these tax cuts. So the earned income tax credit would apply retroactively to the to the current year. So you know, the next time you're filing your taxes, you'd be able to potentially claim an expanded credit if you are a lower income worker. Uh, and for the pension tax repeal, the you know, legally the way they had to do it was apply to the next tax season, but uh, they the Senate sped up again their plan to phase that out. Uh, initially, they had proposed four-year phase out, but now they're saying uh, as soon as we can, which would be the next tax year. So the House um, didn't quite take as dramatic a, of steps there, so they have to sort of iron out those details. But, you know, combined, um, we're looking somewhere, you know, between $800 million and $1 billion in tax relief between those two, you know, sort of targeted programs. And then more broadly, there's this looming issue of a potential income tax cut for, for all earners in the state as part of a 2015 road funding deal. You might remember that then mm-hmm. Governor Rick Snyder signed the state increased registration fees and fuel taxes, but Republicans built in a mechanism into that law that if state revenues um, grow by a certain amount each year, 
uh, it could automatically trigger an income tax cut. And we have seen state revenues grow. So uh, the state hasn't, like, closed its books, like, you know, done its final accounting to determine whether that income tax trigger is actually going to be pulled. But it's a realistic possibility. So uh, there could be even more tax relief coming down the line later this year. Well, do we know how Democrats in Lansing uh, plan to respond to that? Is that something they'd want to get in the way of? Or have they just kind of not discussed it? Or have they signaled that they'd be looking to to repeal that? Well, I think it's a really delicate issue. Yes, it is. Um, You know, Governor Whitmer has not historically favored broad income tax cuts as her preferred method of tax relief. So Democrats, you know, what they're doing proactively here is these targeted tax relief programs. Uh, The governor last year vetoed a couple GOP packages that would have cut income taxes. Generally, Democrats, you know, shy away from that because you know, while everyone would benefit from an income tax rate reduction, uh, it would benefit on a dollar-by-dollar basis the wealthiest residents in the state, right? right? If everybody gets a percentage off, uh, folks who are making a million dollars a year are going to see more savings by the dollar compared to folks who are making $30,000 a year. So it's not their preferred method. And uh, But they also, you know, recognize the political implications of blocking an income tax rollback um, might not look great for them. So, uh, you know, they're sort of taking a wait, a wait and see approach. Right. Um, they've said publicly, at least the House Appropriations yep. Chair has, that they don't have Right. plans to, to block that income tax rollback, but we'll see. All right. Well, Jonathan Osting, I always benefit from speaking with you about Michigan politics. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Tune in tomorrow when we unpack what is happening in Michigan uh, in terms of a new documentary exploring human trafficking and how big the issue is here at the state level. Tune in tomorrow. We'll get into that and your calls on Detroit Today.